Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're continuing our series on Charlie Kaufman. Today we're talking about adaptation. Adaptation is a profound process. It means you figure out how to thrive in the world. Yeah, but it's easier for plants. I mean, they have no memory. You know, they just move on to whatever's next. For the person, you know, adapting is almost shameful. It's like running away. This is a pseudo-autobiographical crime metacomedy. Directed by Spike Jones. The cast includes Ben Sanderson. The Ancient One, Miranda Priestley, Tex Richman, Christy from American Psycho, Maggie Lang, Rachel Dawes, and Logan Roy. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I also purchased it on YouTube. All right. Well, we will begin our episode on adaptation by recapping the events of this film in the synopsis that Joey wrote. Joey, take it away. As Joey sat down to write this review, he immediately disassociated. What was he doing? A movie podcast about a movie that is about making the movie itself? Does that even make sense? And yet he was struck by how it made him feel, as if it was all perfectly plotted, carefully set up, and recklessly knocked over. First, he has to watch the movie. When is he going to do that? He and Benjamin had just recorded their Being John Malkovich episode on Thursday, and are planning to record this one on Sunday. Friday would be a good time to sit down and do that, but when Friday comes, plumbing problems plague him, and he just wants to sit down and play the new Zelda game. So he does, for hours and hours, until it's far too late to start a movie. Ah, why does he always do this? He always puts things off without consideration. And Kevin and his wife are coming over on Saturday night for dinner. Now he has no time at all. He should have watched it on Friday. What an idiot. Joey wakes up late on Saturday morning, already upset. He wants to go running in the morning to clear his head, but it is already so hot outside. He debates getting out of bed at all. No, if he doesn't get up now, he will just be even more miserable. He has time. He has time, right? He gets up and feeds the cat and the hound. He waters the plants and eats breakfast. No apples today, just an apple pie-flavored Lara bar. He stretches, then goes for a short run. It's only 10 a.m., but it's hot as hell. He practically stumbles through the four-mile route and comes back home. He's exhausted. He stayed up too late the night before, and he's already slow to get ready. And what the hell is he going to serve for dinner tonight? That is a problem for future Joey. Right now, he has a movie to watch. Two hours later, he finishes watching Adaptation. He chose YouTube as the streaming service, but has all sorts of problems with the player. If he stops and pauses too often, the player will keep playing without projecting on his television, making him lose his place and have to disconnect and reconnect to the Chromecast. Nothing ever works correctly. He curses and nearly throws his phone. The podcaster takes the hound out and paces in his yard, mulling over the synopsis. This will be a challenge, giving adaptation strange structure. He sits down to write. Many themes stand out to him. He is struck again by how a movie's message often ties directly to whatever he was considering recently. Probably a form of recency bias where you are especially keen to patterns that you are primed for. Every piece of art is ultimately at the whim of the audience. Whatever you learn from watching a movie comes from within. That strikes him as an interesting interpretation of the film given its meta-nature. To write about a film is also to rewrite it in your own head. You become a character in the movie, the person who decides what it's all about. Just like the characters, you are helpless against the plot, but unlike the characters, you survive past the end. You can learn from it and make something new. The next morning, it is Sunday. He sits down to do more research. He wonders if he should take the synopsis in a new direction, one that isn't so literal, but is thematically accurate. Is it thematically accurate? That familiar feeling of self-doubt creeps in. He hasn't even resolved the dinner party plot. Quick, go back and add it in. Oh no, the synopsis is getting out of hand. He's caught up to himself. He is currently writing this very sentence. He shows it to Benjamin for advice. What does he think? Should we use it? Or is the utility of the synopsis more important? Ah, agony. To put yourself into this situation, to break from an expectation to do something new. Isn't that the point of affable chat? He's not sure. 
It's always so hard to be vulnerable, even in this comfortable format. But there is no time for doubt. The synopsis has been written. It is currently being read aloud. And as it reaches its conclusion, Joey and Benjamin feel confident about their experimental synopsis has set them up for the best possible conversation about adaptation. There you have it. (laughs) Not really uh, what we promised, but somehow still capturing the essence of the things that happen in adaptation. We'll go right into our analysis of this film, starting with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about adaptation? This movie is a strongly written meta movie that is both a cheap gimmick and a profound meditation on creative work. Um, Got masterful work from Nicolas Cage, a very strong supporting cast. Meryl Streep is simply amazing. Um, it's genuinely funny and emotional. I really like this is technically a sequel to being John Malkovich. I, I like to, I would like to claim I did that on purpose, but I really didn't. <laughs> I, I just put these movies in chronological order based on their release date. So it just happened that these came out uh, right after each other. Um, the cast cameos from that movie are also some of my favorites ever. Just having Catherine Keener just showing up smiling in the background in so many scenes is so funny. Um, I think there's a lot of creative editing and directing that lets the script really shine. And there's the message in here that to be a better writer, you had to be a better person. And I agree with this. Yeah, fantastic. I, I agree. This movie is a strong meta movie. I, there's l- levels of meta in here that are rivaled by some of the most uh, meta uh, media that I've ever consumed. I mean, it doesn't... Rivaled by Family Guy. <laughs> Wait, yes. <laughs> Family Guy, Rick and Morty are shaking in their, uh, their boots because of how meta this is compared to them. This movie also contains a lot of drama. I was, I felt this movie and it made me sad. It made me happy. It inspired me. It is so much uh, drama in this film. Like you said, great performances from Nicolas Cage. I love Nicolas Cage. I love having two Nicolas Cages. I especially love when Nicolas Cage is across from Nicolas Cage because then you can really see how great of an actor he is when he's face-to-face with an actor as good as him. <laughs> love that. Meryl Streep, like you said, was fantastic. And Chris Cooper was key, playing the John LaRoche character in a way that makes him interesting enough to kind of begin the dominoes that move this whole thing along was so important chris cooper nailed that performance i loved him you know i was ready to move to florida and do drugs with him uh you know and and uh leave my life in new york behind so it was i felt like the casting was really well done this movie was funny at times funny in a similar way that being john malkovich was funny where it's kind of dark and kind of comes out of nowhere at times it's just a really innovative and creative movie i've never seen anything like this which i have to applaud and this movie really respects its audience's intelligence i think this is kind of a challenging one and this movie doesn't necessarily slow down to try to keep everybody on board it it boldly goes for that goes in a direction that it wants to go in regardless of whether or not you're ready for that so I think that that is a lot of great things. Now let's move on to our cons. Joey, what did you not like about adaptation? Charlie Kaufman's self-insert character, right? the, the character named after Charlie Kaufman, uh, his self-deprecating exaggeration of himself uh, borders on fetishistic. It's, it's, it's beyond the pale as far as uh, a sad, pathetic artist um, to the point where you start to wonder if he gets something out of this beyond the, um, uh, you know, the initial uh, self-deprecation. Um, a lot of fat phobia, one of the things that Kaufman says about himself frequently in his list of poor qualities is how he's fat, even though Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage is wearing a fat suit in this movie. A fat suit that he sweated through so much that the lentil beans inside it started to sprout. But um, <laughs> he's he's not he's not obese in any sort of way, right? He's not a he's not outside of the the Hollywood acceptability as far as attractive actors go. So um, he calls himself fat, which seems to be a another example of him not recognizing his own worth. But it's also a sort of dangerous thing. It, we've already noticed a pattern between these two movies. Of Kaufman's um, uh, repulsive uh, phobia or 
a repulsive nature toward fat people. Definitely. I agree with the character of Charlie Kaufman being so pathetic and so pervy and awkward to the point where it was, like you said, beyond the pale. I got so annoyed at watching him for most of this film, and that kind of took away a little bit of the enjoyment. I also think this movie, for all of its respect for its audience, is mildly inaccessible because it's so focused on something that most people never do, which is writing screenplays. I mean, you can try to broaden that idea out a little bit more, but this movie dives headfirst into a creative process that is probably pretty foreign to a lot of people. Um, sure. And, and I think that by fo- honing in on that so hard, it, it could be, come across as like kind of a pinhead movie where you're really speaking to Hollywood as your audience and not necessarily you know, everyday folks, there was, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but like two thirds of the way through this movie, I was like, dang, I am not having a good time. And then the third act comes along and I'm like, ah, this movie's so smart. So, uh, <laughs> and then finally, what was the whole John selling porn storyline going on? Is that just him adapting again? I just felt like it was kind of like and then he also had Susan on his website. Right. I felt like that wasn't resolved. It just was kind of a thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, well, the whole third act is like uh, the whole third act is amazing, right? <laughs> um <laughs> can we can we go into when we start it, I guess? Yeah, okay. Well, we'll we'll kind of yeah, we'll circle back to that. Uh let's get into our conversation in earnest here in the overall section and we'll start with you, Joey. I yeah I want to talk a little bit about the third act. Uh, I think it's really it's really funny because a lot of times when you get to this point in the movie, your suspension of disbelief. I'm not talking about adaptation, but just movies in general. Your suspension of disbelief is so strained, right? You've 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 exercised it to the point where you're already uh, totally invested in whatever's going on, right? You have all these different characters that are. Uh, you have to remember their names, their motivations, and their relationships with each other. You have this whole plot that's going forward, and you have an idea of where it's going, right? There's a lot of different things. You're expecting maybe a twist or two and some some exciting action in the end. You're you're primed for a certain thing, right? And the third act can feel like the dominoes are falling. There's nothing for you to do except for accept everything that's coming in. There's nothing more to consider. The the guns are being fired, right? The bullets are already in the air. Uh, people are, are jumping out of planes or, or fighting each other. Everything is sort of collapsing in on itself. And then we'll have some sort of conclusion at the end that may or, not, may, or may not be surprising. But this third act is probably, in terms of, uh, in terms of I would say, story writing or sto- like storytelling, the least consequential. Because everything that's set up is already in motion. And everything, and then at the very end, you'll see what the conclusion is. And this is just the mechanism, the marbles rolling down the maze to get to that point, right? So when he is talking about the third act and how he has to save it in the third act, it has this otherworldly quality to it. it. It starts to get out of hand so quickly. And it, it, but it, it naturally transitions into it once Donald takes over the script, right? Once he arrives and he asks for help, Donald is in charge of the script from then that point on, and he turns it into normal Hollywood schlock by having all these like little threads that he's pulled together to turn into this crazy action scene, right? And I think it's it's funny because it works for the adaptation. It it is this satisfying conclusion for all of these different plot threads that 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 charlie kaufman was not able to resolve and it is a criticism of hollywood's third act structure as saying like oh no, none of this really matters or has happened or is consequential at all like we're just gonna have it all go to hell all at once we'll have our characters kill each other we'll have uh, somebody eaten by an alligator we'll have uh, drugs and sex and all the rest so it's it doesn't like it doesn't fit into the rest of the movie, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because that is the nature of the third act is your audience is already trapped by the story. It's, they can't get away, so they're going to sit there and take whatever you're going to feed them. Right, but it's also 
necessary, right? You you can't yes. make your movie without it because if you don't have that stuff, then you don't have a story that's worth telling. Uh, as McKee says, you've wasted my valuable two hours. Right. Yeah, and I, I think it does. I think it is fun. Like it's it works for the movie. It makes it more. It makes it interesting. It makes it exciting, and it gives it this. Um, it gives it this fictional quality that I think it makes movies that are based on true stories have this extra texture to them. It makes it easier to talk about and easier to discuss when you have these little elements of of, um, of fiction inserted in that you have to resolve once you finish watching the movie. So, uh, I, yeah, I thought it was <laughs> it's it's weird, but it works with the rest of the story, and uh, I think it's just pretty amazing to even consider that as a option for your uh navel gazing <laughs> screenwriting movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, that's what makes it feel so smart is that it actually works the movie points it out in itself it's like hey have you noticed that this movie has been kind of weird for the first two-thirds of it well <laughs> here's how we're gonna fix it and then that happens and I, I, that's it's just so meta yeah so whenever a movie is telling two overlapping stories, I think to myself, oh, they didn't have enough to fill one movie, so they're doing two at the same time. I think this is certainly true of adaptation. But Kaufman, the, the real Charlie Kaufman who wrote this movie, recognized this as an opportunity. Just as Susan Orlean put herself, put much of herself in her book to fill the gaps provided by LaRoche, Kaufman puts himself into this movie. By extending the pattern, he absolves Orlean of her self-centeredness and transfers the focus to being about the process of adaptation itself. Kaufman, the actual screenwriter, knows that making something means putting part of yourself into it. It's not possible to be objective. Making Kaufman himself a character is an expression of that. Even though you adapt someone else's work, you're putting your own voice into it. You're deciding what is important. You need what needs to be celebrated, what needs to be ignored. But the, char- but the character of Charlie Kaufman is a really great trick that the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman is playing. He makes himself out to be a pathetic, antisocial loser. He's given a lot of respect by other people in his industry, but he doesn't believe he deserves it. And ultimately, the lesson he learns at the end is that in order to be a better screenwriter, he has to be a better person. This is how he imparts a message to the audience. And yet, even though it's essentially the writer insert saying it, it isn't condescending or preachy. It comes across as genuine and like is a challenge for him to realize and to achieve. Yeah, it's that duality of uh, Nick Cage, right? Because we yes. have him playing Charlie Kaufman. We also have him playing Donald Kaufman. And Donald is kind of that like exemplar uh, character, right? He is the one who actually is living the lifestyle of the lesson we're supposed to learn. So he, can, right. he can literally tell us the, the lesson in his screenplay, but it's being told by the character that is explicitly not him. <laughs> <laughs> but it is him, though. That's the thing, because right. Donald Kaufman doesn't really exist. Right. But he's like part of the. He's like another aspect of Charlie Kaufman, which is a, a gosh. You know, when he shows up, when Donald shows up, and he's like, "I have an idea for a script," and it relies on multiple personality disorder. Right? It's just another hilarious twist to this idea of like characters uh, expressing. Uh, different aspects of themselves through various versions of themselves and here is Kaufman literally split himself in two to explain uh to make a joke about personal uh, multiple personality disorders <laughs> hilarious <laughs> I love Donald he's so much fun <laughs> he was so much fun he was so great he was so upbeat about everything and then when that 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 uh, conclusion at the end when he's in the when he's in the Everglades in the swamp and they're hiding behind that log, and he's talking about this girl that was making fun of him, even though he had a crush on her. And he says, uh, "I am what I love, not what loves me." Uh, you know, it, it, it's an incredible little insight that you see, and you can tell that uh, that uh, Charlie thinks of Donald as this naive person who doesn't understand, doesn't know what an Ouroboros is, you know, uses the wrong terminology, and he believes that he can find. Uh, um, salvation in a screenwriting class uh but he's not any of those he's not a naive person you know he's he is uh, perfectly aware of the world around him he just chooses to see it in a different light and i think that's a really powerful thing to say because once again you know this is the most profound thing i learned from reading infinite jest uh people mistake uh cynicism with lack of naivety and it's simply not true i i what i what i really appreciate about this um, is is the the uh, these Charlie Kaufman's 
character insert uh, is a perfect avatar for boosting his own image in his field. He looks like a tortured artist that doesn't take himself too seriously, and he signals uh, the ultimate Hollywood virtue, which is humility. All, all, every person in Hollywood wants to believe they are the most humble person in the world, uh, without, without any sort of um, irony in that statement. Yes, uh, no and, one and is I, more humble than I am. That's right. I've never met anyone more humble than me. <laughs> They walked in the room. Uh, and they said, "Wow, that is a humble guy. That is a, <laughs> no one's ever seen anyone this humble. No one's ever seen anything more humble than this. <laughs> uh, it's true. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Charlie Kaufman isn't humble. I don't know. I've never met him, but he is able to cast himself in a in this model of that virtue without directly saying it. It's very clever. It's very savvy. And I don't disagree with him either. I do believe that to become a better person or better writer, you have to be a better person." It's a lesson I hope other people take to heart the same way that I have. And for me, it's a brilliant choice. Coffin is both making himself look good while giving us a story with meaning. And I feel like I have no problems with that. Even though, like, the, the story behind this, this um, movie is largely what you see on screen, right? Kaufman did struggle with writer's block for a long time. And ultimately, this was the only thing he could come up with was to... Uh, have him put himself into the movie struggling to make the movie it the process of adaptation becomes such a profound a uh, theme that stretches beyond uh, the screenwriting process into nature itself that it works really really well it ties itself together really strongly whereas many other situations where i don't know what to do so let's just make a movie about making a movie falls on its face because it's ultimately uh standing on nothing this uh, finds root somehow, and uh, it's really c- quite incredible. It is a the rare situation where I don't know what to do, so I'm going to make it about my current situation actually works. It reminds me of this video that we watched a while back called uh, I'm a Male Student Director, and this is how you make the best film ever. Oh, yes. And that is <laughs> one of his like things. It's like, well, if you can't figure out what you're going to do, then just you could always make a movie about making a movie because it's so <laughs> original and smart, which is hilarious because this movie is able to do that and actually be original and smart. Yes. Yes. So let's continue. Charlie Kaufman, the character, doesn't believe there are rules to life, just as there aren't rules to being a writer. But he realizes he is wrong and is forced to adapt. His brother, Donald, says there aren't rules, there are principles. He means they're more like axioms. There are universal truths, things you have to contend with if you want to be successful. By denying the rules of writing, Charlie hopes to tap into unrestrained creative space, but he's paralyzed by choice and unable to focus. It's only when he reads this passage from Orlean's book that he gets an insight into what he's missing. There are too many ideas and things and people, too many directions to go. I was starting to believe the reason it matters to care passionately about something is that it whittles the world down to a more manageable size. This, to me at least, is the purpose of art. It is to focus attention on a specific part of our world in order to say something about the entire world. It's like looking through a telescope to see a planet. From far away, you can technically see more, but by focusing on a specific part of the sky, you learn more about every part of it. Therefore, it is a rule of life. Be passionate. Care about something. Not only will it enrich your life, it'll give you insight into life as a whole. While Kaufman is realizing he doesn't have something to be passionate about, he is seeing too much. The rules of writing help constrain the mind to something specific, to help passion flow through and not get caught in endless tributaries and creeks of misguided nonsense. So when you say that, well, this that Kaufman says, like, to be a good writer, you have to be a good person. What exactly, what does it mean to be a good person in that context? It's, it's hard to say exactly, but I think the most basic answer to that question is to be of the world, right? What Kaufman, what Charlie Kaufman, the character seems to believe that is, is to be in a relationship right? Find someone to love, um, which I think is probably right. But I th- just not sitting in your dingy room 
masturbating all day would be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and you there the color difference that you see that, like Spike Jones uses here, right? Is amazing. You have him in these kind of throes of passion imagining that he's in like this orchid garden with this beautiful waitress played by Judy Greer. Um and then he's um alone in his dark blue and black um uh, bedroom you know uh, pleasuring himself it, it the stark contrast to that of, of the richness and color that is a uh, possible in life versus his reality that's dark and dingy uh shows the what he's what he's capable of when he is um when, not what he's capable of but what his problem is it's a simple problem of ma- like material conditions right if you surround yourself with interesting people and have interesting life experiences you'll have more interesting things to say um, even if all you're doing is relating those experiences back to people. Uh, to make those kind of connections, you have to be in a new place with new things. And he realizes that the only thing that he knows enough about is his own mind, right? And starts writing about that. It, it, it comes off as insane. It comes off as, as uh, completely unhinged and completely uh, misguided because suddenly you, if you think if all you are is your own world, then the only conclusion you have is that you are the most important thing in it. So to be a good person is to live a good life, to live well. And to do that, you have to live passionately. You have to find something to be passionate about. I think that's true. I, 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 like, that, I like that conclusion that is from the book, right? Uh, to um, to cho- just choose something, right, to that, that you want to care about and to make something out of that. Um, and we, you see through LaRoche the depth of knowledge he has about all of the subjects that he cares about, right? The, he's able to identify plants by their scientific name just by looking at them. He, he recognizes all the different pieces and parts and, and, and how they are grown, right? It's, it, it's clearly a very deep knowledge that he has. and. It, it leads him to this really, like, beautiful um, uh, meditation. point is, what's so wonderful is that every one of these flowers has a specific relationship with the insect that pollinates it. There's a certain orchid looks exactly like a certain insect, so the insect is drawn to this flower. It's double, it's soulmate, and wants nothing more than to make love to it. After, the insect flies off, spots another soulmate flower, and makes love to it, thus pollinating it. And neither the flower nor the insect will ever understand the significance of their lovemaking. I mean, how could they know that because of their little dance, the world lives? But it does. By simply doing what they're designed to do, something large and magnificent happens. In this sense, they show us how to live, how the only barometer you have is your heart. When you spot your flower, you can't let anything get in your way. I don't know if I... Thinking about this over and over again, I don't know if I completely agree with it, but I really like what he's, what he's hinting at here, which is by living passionately, by uh, doing, following your heart, you are uh, playing a role in Gaia, right? In the world spirit. By the whole world continues to function and live and not just our society but nature itself continues to exist when you uh, listen to like your what your desires are uh, the desire to be a part of nature and be a part of something bigger than yourself um, and to live passionately for something I don't know I feel like you could twist that easily into something evil uh, pretty obviously and lots <laughs> of human emotions and uh, desires that are certainly uh, uh, too hedonistic and self-serving to be labeled as you know great but um i do love the idea of, of this framing it as being in love or uh having a romantic relationship with someone is not just you following your desire but part of the greater mechanism of the world it's so. yeah it's like a mutually beneficial exchange as opposed to being like your mission which could be like making a bunch of money or like dominating everybody in your immediate surroundings you know instead having this kind of back and forth makes it kind of this thing where you both get more out of your the exchange than you started with uh well the other thing too that i think is really great because it's just kind of like a 
it's interesting how this movie plays with cliches because it kind of rejects cliches while also saying that there's a reason that they're a cliche that they they work right the, the the principles these axioms one of my favorite cliches is uh you know get busy living or get busy dying you know if you're not <laughs> Shawshank. yeah if you're not actually going out there and living passionately then you are dying right and there is you can't just stand still so yeah that that's what um is kind of emanating from this quote for me is that because these insects are so driven so passionate about finding their specific flower that that combined effort of all the different flowers and all different insects doing that you know becomes greater than the sum of its parts it it emanates the essence of life that makes the world like go which i think is really powerful yeah uh, I think I, I agree. And I think that's what, like, what an amazing like, way to frame this, right? And, and to tie that back to adaptation, it's, it's the world has created these, in, these uh, uh, mechanisms, has created these flowers and these insects that work together in this way for things to happen. Uh, and it, is, it has moved beyond the simple into the very, very complex, right? I mean, we are uh, humans are a result, the, the production, like the, you know, what's it, the, the fruit of that process. Um, we, we have not discovered anything more complicated than the human mind in the universe. And it is the only thing we know of that can even comprehend the complexity of the human mind or the, uh, the, the rest of the universe. Um, and that was all built on a process of adaptation of slowly changing things over time until something uh, profound happens. Well, I'm glad we waited until we were five years into sitting down and writing things every week to watch a movie (laughs) about the struggle of writing things. Uh, You know, writing in my free time was not necessarily part of uh, my you know hobbies before we started this podcast the scene where charlie sits down to write and then immediately he thinks about how he needs to get coffee and how he needs to get a muffin how he's hungry that was unbelievably relatable when i sat down to write my review of this film i spent the first 30 minutes staring at my keyboard and waiting for the words to come to me which felt very meta Uh, obviously i think we covered this to the synopsis (laughs) but when you're trying to write about this movie specifically it's uh you know endless layers of uh meta where you know the movie is about you and you're about the movie and you're writing about the movie and the movie's about writing about something else and trying to create something new out of something that already exists it's it made my head spin i love things that are meta and it doesn't get more meta than watching a movie about someone writing the screenplay of a movie that you're actually in the process of watching. And for all his self-loathing in this film, I think that the result shows that Kaufman is a screenwriting genius to be able to tie this whole thing together. I like how this movie addresses rules and principles, like we've already talked about it a little bit. And Donald puts it very well. He says... He says that McKee writes, almost like he's (laughs) quoting scripture, he says, uh, a rule says you must do it this way. A principle says this works and has through all remembered time. Sometimes things are just true. Just because you're trying to innovate or be inventive doesn't mean you need to throw out all conventional wisdom. It's possible to use what works to help you get to that new territory. Adaptation itself uses a familiar story structure to tell a totally unconventional story. McKee literally tells Charlie how to end the film by telling him to wow the audience in the end. And he does that by giving us all the things that Charlie told Tilda Swinton's character that he didn't want to have in the screenplay. (laughs) Sex car chases, guns, the characters learning profound life lessons, and overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. And that's fitting, because this movie is about evolution and adaptation. Because, you know, it's, once again, double meaning, double entendre, multiple layers of the, like, things to understand here, when, with literally the word adaptation. Because adaptation, one definition of adaptation is a change or the process of change by which an organism or species becomes better suited to its environment. The example in this film is the orchids. Adaptation uh, has another definition, which is 
taking a written work and turning it into a movie, which is what's happening with the book, The Orchid Thief, as Coffin struggles to turn that into a screenplay. And John LaRoche literally defines it out loud by saying that adaptation is figuring out how to survive in the world. Very clever to make a movie about adapting a book where the themes are about adapting and the book you're adapting is about plants that specifically adapted for insects to pollinate them. It's double meaning on double meaning. It's meta on meta. And it all works out. It's all very impressive. I, I mean, that alone, it reminds me of Vertigo with the way that Vertigo so strictly adheres to its themes of spirals. This film rivals the complexity and adherence to that theme uh, with the way that it explores adaptation in all of its definitions. One of my favorite things about this film is it shows the power of great storytelling. Many times in this film, someone will begin reading or talking about something that happened in the past. Just a few sentences in, the sound of their voice will be replaced by the audio of a scene that we're watching. And the scene is literally the thing that they were saying being acted out. An example of this was when John was recounting the death of his mother and his uncle and the coma that his wife went into that ended up with her leaving him. Truly great storytelling has that power. It can take you there. It can allow you to experience the story not as words being read off a page, but it, as an actual experience that you're witnessing yourself. It's literally what a screenplay allows us to do with a book. It makes the words into something you can experience visually or even deeper than that, potentially, which is was really magical. You know, in a, a film about writing, I think it's essential to kind of reinforce this idea that truly great writing has that power to take you there. Yeah, the, I mean, the pathos in this movie is incredible. Uh, the moments when, when, when John's uh, family is killed, uh, like, it's, so, it's so quick. I mean, it's like maybe a minute long or something like that. But everything in there, like the, the bright colors, they're pulling out of the driveway, right? Um, he, said, he says something and then his mom says, we're so proud of you, right? It's just, it's just, just to kill her, like two seconds later is so, it's so, such a gut punch. It really hurts. And then when he's like laying on the stretcher and he's asking, which ones are dead? Which ones are dead? It's so, I mean, it's so heartbreaking. And you don't even know these people. Like you never, you just met them a couple minutes ago, so you didn't even know they existed, right? And it's just really powerful. And then when Donald dies too, and he's singing uh, "Happy Together" with him, it's. I mean, it makes you want to cry. It's so, it's so uh, incredibly touching. Even though all of this is like tied up in this sort of silly uh, third act, it all like fits together in this really like profound moment of loss and it really makes you wonder what's like what he can do if he really tries to go for a tragedy all the way you know it's so like it really tugs at your heartstrings in a way that makes me very uh, invested in the story and makes me really like uh watching it and and makes me feel like i'm watching something important something that that will touch people right because of the way it makes me feel um and uh, it's it's amazing to be able to do that so quickly to be able to do that with with such finesse and so carefully without making it seem like it's it's dragging on or, or making you making you so dang depressed that you don't want to watch it ever again it's something that i can't even explain to myself that I'm able to sit here welling up with tears as Nick Cage watching himself die sings <laughs> happy together while yeah. it's happening and it just works it, it's it's one of the it's another situation where I do feel like the casting was perfect because the role of the roles of Charlie and Donald Kaufman I think ask for you to bring in somebody weird there's like this kind of area you can exist in that I feel like most actors can't exist in that that's just not an option for them. They're either too cool or they're something else that doesn't help them just fit into this niche that I feel like Nick Cage almost completely exists in on his own community like has a really great episode about how Nick Cage is kind of um indefinable but 
Uh, I think in, this is kind of similar to John Malkovich being cast in being John Malkovich, where you you have somebody who kind of specifically fits that um, that they're they're perfect for the task because this movie it it is weird, uh, but Nick Cage is able to get you past that. Uh, like again, after I watched this scene, after I watched the whole movie, thinking back on, it, I was like, dang, I really watched Nick Cage act across from himself the whole movie, and it felt real i never stopped to say like well this is weird nick cage what is he actually looking at when this scene because i know it's not him right yeah i was i was trying to keep that in mind while i was watching it um because i do think that the acting across from yourself challenge uh i think it can be done with a lot of trickery right obviously he's not in the same frame as the other person but if he if he's talking to someone that's off stage, it doesn't have to be him. It can just be somebody else, and that person doesn't have to emote, right? Nick Cage is doing all of the all of the work, right? So maybe it takes longer to shoot, but it, it's it, it's ultimately this like more careful, carefully manicured performance. Um, but I thought he was brilliant. I I thought he was so reserved in, in his way, right? when he's so known for being outlandish and sort of uh, out there they sometimes plays very bizarre characters or has very bizarre scenes within uh, otherwise just kind of normal movies he's he seems he seems so like such a tortured soul uh, both as charlie and as donald and it works such a such a good uh, he looks like you know a schlubby um screenwriter and not like some sort of internationally known A-lister movie star, right? I think that's a, that's a testament to his uh, like work as an actor. Apparently, he t- he was very uh, he adhered to Spike Jones's um, uh, direction very closely. He said that he he abandoned everything that he thought he knew about acting for this role, and instead acted exactly the way that Spike Jones asked him to. Um, so again, another example of puppetry or, um, the lack of self-preservation from our actors really pulling off a really great performance and adaptation and evolution. Nick Cage decided to do try something new. <laughs> yeah, it's, man, it's it good. continues to kind of circle around. So I want to know, I, I kind of just want to talk through our main characters with you and kind of ask ourselves how they exemplify the themes of this film. Because I, I think okay. this can be an interesting experiment. I think Charlie and Donald is pretty obvious, right? Charlie is the one who needs to learn the lesson of this film. He's living in fear the whole movie, always afraid of what other people are going to think of him. Honestly, having outland like bizarre fear of what other people might think. That first part of the movie, that's just a black screen with him talking about how he's such an idiot and how he's fat and a loser and balding and how he needs to go to the gym and he needs to learn Chinese and how to play the oboe. All those things uh, really show that he has ground to make up on self-actualizing, right? Uh, But in the end, his crazy third act experience with Donald inspires him to grow, to adapt, to become a better person, to be more confident, to live passionately, right? So obviously, you're going to have your protagonist be the one who goes through that development process. Donald is the example of how we should be. He's confident. He's not afraid of what the world thinks of him. He's not naive, but he chooses to uh, live the way that he wants to. He's, he's passionate about the things. He lets his passion define him and not external factors define him as well. So I feel like those two are pretty easy to define how they exe- uh, you know, exist within the themes of this film. Do you agree? I do, yes. Uh, especially how not just Donald as a model, but how he learns from his brother, right? He's also adapting to a new career, right? And in this new place, I mean, he just shows up on the set one day and he, you know, hits it off with Maggie Gyllenhaal um, and Catherine Keener <laughs> and they're playing Boggle in Charlie Coffin's house. Um, like he, he seems to just kind of fit in to whatever situation he's in. He's able to model himself into whatever he needs to be in order to to fit this. When he's pretending to be Charlie to interview Susan Orlean, he comes across as this sort of confident, but um, not like um, you know, maybe a, maybe a little judgy, right? He definitely has this little um, 
you know, hint to him, but he comes off as like very, uh, you know, uh, friendly and uh, personable and like that he wants to, like he understands people and wants to know them better, um, which is what Charlie should be, right? That's what, that's the, that's the ideal situation when you're trying to write uh, movies with characters in them. Right, exactly. So yeah, it, which makes him more real too, because he's not just a shining example of the perfect person. He's developing as well. Yes. Then, then we get to John. John, like we said before, is kind of the first domino to fall that inspires all the different writings about things that uh, make up adaptation. He's confident and self-assured, willing to go after whatever he wants, and he doesn't let his past define him. He's been through this trauma. He's been through disaster. He's had passions that he's moved on from and been able to just drop them and pick up on the next thing. You know, he was this great fish collector, this fish. He uh, collected all these fossils, and now he's the best at collecting these flowers because he's able to adapt to whatever will serve him next, right? I think he's kind of... uh, emanating this idea of adaptation so again i think that's like a pretty straightforward example of you know the themes of this film but then we get to susan susan to me is a little bit confusing i think this is a more compelling conversation to have because susan already is living what i think a lot of people define as is like a successful life she's married she lives in new york she's a respected writer she's got this hit book that's being optioned to be a film She's kind of doing all this, but when she spends time with John, somebody who is really living his life passionately, she kind of has this moment during her dinner party with all her snobby New York like friends who all kind of look the same. She realizes that her life is kind of empty. She now like sees it as empty, and that leads her to pursue John romantically in this you know scandalous Fancy. affair where they're doing drugs yeah. together. And ultimately, her adaptation ends up ruining her life and destroying her. What are we supposed to learn from that? It almost, to me, seems contradictory to the message of this film. Well, I think that, um, obviously, she shouldn't have killed or tried to kill, uh, what's his name? Um, Donald? Charlie. Oh, Charlie, yeah. Uh, yeah. If she had uh, simply accepted this as a, as a possibility for her life, right? Instead of trying to hold on to something that she was clearly trying to run away from, then uh, she wouldn't be in this situation, right? Mm. Uh, and I think there's, it's obvious that with passion and with adaptation, there comes risk, right? You, you, can, you can try things and they don't work out. And um, it, it, that's, I mean, that's what happens to John over and over again, right? He, he's continually adapting, but you know, this hurricane blows down his nursery. His whole family uh, is almost is killed in a um, car accident, right? And he he, um, he keeps getting arrested by <laughs> the state authorities for 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 uh, stealing orchids. So it's you know it doesn't, it doesn't really work out for him either. He's not living like a perfect life, even though he embodies that um, that message of adaptation. He's more of an extreme version of of that, perhaps. For Susan, it's it's that lack of like like you said, she has this empty life, right? She all of her friends are laughing at John, but it's I mean, I always try to be careful about that sort of thing. I think that all that if you get into a situation where you're like, oh, this person's so weird, or this person's so out of place, or something, it's possible they have something figured out that you don't, you know? Because not just because like they're the subject of your attention, but because uh, they might be. They might not care what you think and still be living a better life. The same way that that Donald kind of embodies that, right? Um, all that is is a defense mechanism to keep you from recognizing the emptiness in your own life. Oh, look, uh, this person cares too much. You know that makes them weak. Uh, like me, I'm a cynical mastermind. I understand how the world works. I don't, I don't let myself fall prey to passions. Um, I'm more rational than that. Uh, when in fact, all that does is cut you off from uh, what life is worth experiencing, what parts of life are worth experiencing, I should say. I think that's really well put. I, I totally agree. Being too cool for school is, is evidence that you're actually really lame. You know, if you don't, yes. if you're not able to be passionate, if you're not able to get behind something and, and let it inspire you, then yeah, you, I feel like that is something I've, 
I noticed a little bit in um, internet culture, kind of this ultimate cynicism, the irony pilled community that, um, you know, if you're, if anything becomes worthy of people devoting themselves to it, well, then it's no longer worth paying attention to because if people are doing that, then it must be lame. Exactly. And again, it's this idea that if you're cynical, you're not naive, right? If you're, oh, you, you have seen both sides and recognize that they're all full of shit. And therefore you are the, you know, you're the supreme authority on that. Not recognizing that as a heuristic and not recognizing that as, uh, you're just mistaking what seems like knowledge with just someone, you know, just, uh, saying the opposite of what other people are saying. Um, so it's just a, yeah, it's just a, like a shortcut basically. And yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that we all care a little bit too much about what people think. And I think that in uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses or just trying to be normal, whatever that means to you, is a complete mistake. You, I think all it does is make you, um, uh, make you f- push you further away from things you care about and makes it harder for you to enjoy things. Uh, if you want to live a normal life, um, then take a close look at any person in your life and recognize how fucking weird they are. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I totally agree. It's a great, it's obviously uh, even something after you realize it and commit to saying that you're okay with people seeing you as weird, it's still going to be difficult. That's okay. But I think that living in the fear is definitely not an option. You can't just right. perpetually live your life thinking about what other people are going to think about you. I think it's okay to be uber self-referential in this episode specifically, but I'll I'll just put out there that doing a podcast like this is weird. There are people who find <laughs> out they they out me as a podcaster and think that it's a legitimate like embarrassing moment for me. The the like, <laughs> like look, he has a podcast. Everybody, look, look how cringe that is. <laughs> You know, and then uh, a lot of times it ends up being similar to uh, what's his name in Jurassic Park. Yeah, played by Wayne Knight, where he's like, everybody, look, look, he has a podcast. See, no one cares. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, because everybody's got their own thing going on in their head. So you should be emboldened to be weird, to live weirdly, uh, because at the end of the day, that's going to make you the person that you are, you know, you, instead of being afraid to be that person. To go further with the podcast metaphor, um, I feel like I've become such a stronger writer, but also just like that I get so much more out of watching something than anybody else I know besides you. Um, like if I'm watching, you know, if, I, if I'm watching a television show or a movie or something with someone else, most of the time, once it's over, it's over, right? And it's it's hard even for me to like spark up a conversation about what's going on in the movie. You know, it's hard to like synthesize that all that quickly before, as we're walking to the car for the movie theater. <laughs> but it's um, uh, I think that when I when I'm experiencing something like that, um, and I don't even think I get that same experience out of music or um other forms of art. You know, uh, but for movies specifically, I think I I feel like I I've tapped into something way more and i feel like I, I get so much more enjoyment and feel so much more passionately about it um than other people and it's because i spend so much time focusing and being passionate about it uh you know making it part of my life and i think that's uh, uh a lesson that i want other people to take away as well and, and other people to learn and something that i want to impart to my children is the the power of of caring about something it, it gives you an insight into the rest of the world um, something that, uh, and I, I really appreciate that this movie gave us that um, idea. That's something that I think about probably for a long time. Yep. You focus in and then you can see things more clearly and you know more about the big picture. I, I love it. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. And, and again, it's one of those things where I'm like, dang, this movie's just so smart. <laughs> okay. I think we're ready to move on to our cool Easter eggs. Joey, what do you got? Okay. So, I had a whole bunch of them. Um, Susan Orlean is a real person. She really did write The Orchid Thief, which this movie is based off of. Um, she did an interview with GQ in 2012 where they asked her about um, this portrayal of her. They asked her, what your, what's your role as a character in your stories? 
first. And she said, one thing I'm very comfortable with is the inherent subjectivity of literary journalism. While the, the kind of writing that I do is honest and factual, it's also very clear that it's a story I'm telling you, limited by my vision, my abilities as a report, reporter, and frankly, colored by what I feel is important. Sometimes I'm just a narrator taking you from one place to another, but sometimes I want to reveal to you why I was drawn to the story, which I think is really great because it ties in directly to the ideas of this movie, which is that you put yourself into any adaptation you make or anything you, you do. And they, they asked her specifically about adaptation. They said, were you surprised when you read the screenplay? And she said, it was a complete shock. My first reaction was absolutely not. They had to, they had to get my permission. And I said, no, are you kidding? This is going to ruin my career. Very wisely, they, did, they didn't really pressure me. They told me that everybody else had agreed, and I somehow got emboldened. It was certainly scary to see the movie for the first time. It took a while for me to get over the idea that I had been insane to agree to it, but I love the movie now. What I admire the most is that it's very true to the book's themes of life and obsession, and there are also insights into things which are much more subtle in the book about longing and about disappointment. Part of the reason why she was emboldened by this is because uh, she was like, uh, someone pointed out to her that Charlie Kaufman portrays himself as a, like a serial masturbator in the movie. And she's like, okay, I guess, I guess this isn't so bad for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she, she went on to say that um, Meryl, this is one of her favorite Meryl Streep performances, which of, of course it is. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Yeah, and also, <laughs> but to be playing you in a movie. <laughs> to be portrayed by Meryl Streep, what an honor, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, I think that <laughs> Truly. no matter what she's doing, it would be cool to be like, well, Meryl Streep played me, especially because this movie talks so much about who would play John LaRoche. Yes. Yeah, it's like, who's going to play me? Who's going to play me? Which, by the way, they did a great job uh, with casting Chris Cooper as John LaRoche and for the same thing for uh, Susan Orlean to get Meryl Streep of all actors is pretty cool. Yeah, so I, I really like this answer from Susan Orlean, especially the part where she talks about how the movie is very true to the book's themes and about how she she was impressed that Kaufman was able to pull out some of the more subtle stuff, stuff that maybe she didn't even intend to put in there, but had, you know, had written based on the way that she, th- she views the world. Uh, so again, showing the, uh, the depth that I think Kaufman understood the story and, and it kind of gives you an idea of why it was so difficult for him to adapt as because it is this, there's all these subtle things going on in the background. Uh, it wasn't this, it wasn't just that it was not a narrative, right? Not something that was easy to tell linear, linearly. It was also it had a lot of things going on in the background that he wanted to include. Um, this is kind of a fun thing. So Donald writes a, a movie called The Three, which is uh, about multiple personalities. And there's specifically a cop, a criminal, uh, like a serial killer and a woman that he captures. And all three of them are. Uh, supposedly the same guy (laughs) (laughs) which is so funny especially when charlie's like how does this work exactly how in the reality of the movie how does this work and donald's like trick photography of course (laughs) (laughs) um but uh there is a movie called identity which you and i have watched um that stars john cusack um, and the twist at the end of the movie, spoilers, is that it is a multiple. All twelve characters in our story are played by the same person, and one of the one of the personalities is killing off the other ones in this uh, imaginary, like uh, small motel that he um, uh, that he has like uh, constructed in his head. It also reminded me of Seven a little bit because of yes. the, the brutal ways that the murderer was trying to do it. I feel like they did such a great job of going with all these cliches and then like making them seem so stupid and then it being hilarious when it sold for millions of dollars yes. i just love it which <laughs> i think is more of like a, a jab at hollywood than anything else where it's like they're willing to appreciate this completely trite thriller uh you know slasher as opposed to potentially this ambitious kind of trailblazing screenplay that charlie's trying to write the whole time Yes, exactly. But it makes sense. Like it is this, it's this constant struggle, right? And if you read, I read um, Blake Snyder's uh, "Save the Cat," uh, which is about screenplay, which is about writing screenplays, and uh, a lot of the things that McKee says, it sort of mirrors what what Snyder says. It's a, it, it was a, it's a very good book. It's very interesting to hear what he talks about about 
not just conforming to a specific like bucket, but that you end up doing it anyway. You just need to understand what it is. And he has all these different genres that he's invented uh, to explain all the different types of movies there are and, and how like, and, you know, cliches can be useful because they, they'll tell you everything you need to know about a character without having to do any of the work. So there's a lot of different things you can do. Um, but with, like, there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons why this script uh, succeeds. I think it's because it falls into what people expect, and um, I mean, I mean the three, uh, not necessarily adaptation. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's. Uh, I think you're right. It is an indictment on Hollywood, but it's also like a reinforcement of these things that are true. It, it is also saying Robert McKee and Blake Steiner are right. This is a way to write a screenplay. Um, at the very end of the movie, I didn't catch this, uh, I actually found this on IMDb, um, there's a paragraph from Donald Kaufman's script, The Three, um, and it shows right at the end, after all the credits are finished, even after the uh, Rasputin, um, the Rasputin uh, disclaimer, uh, at the very end it says, uh, this movie is not based on real events, or it is based on actual events, but some pieces have been changed <laughs> for uh, purposes of the movie. And the, the, uh, the, par- the paragraph reads this. We're all one thing, Lieutenant. That's what I've come to realize. Like cells in a body. Except we can't see the body, the way fish can't see the ocean. And so we envy each other, hurt each other, hate each other. How silly is that? A heart cell hating a lung cell. This is Cassie from the three. <laughs> Pretty good, actually. Good stuff. I mean, I assume she's talking to the lieutenant being the police officer that she right, is Right, who's also her. Yes. <laughs> Quite literally true, but also about, you know, they're all all pieces of uh, the world, so pretty good. Um, I also wrote down uh, McKee's Ten Commandments that he wrote. Uh, one of my favorite jokes in this movie is when Donald appears in the uh, do- doorway and he says, you shouldn't have done that. Because it's such good advice. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, like, cult thing is so funny. Um, yeah, I-, I thought these were fun because the- none of them are, like, exactly about theme necessarily right they're not really about like how to how to capture a good story it's just like uh thou shalt do research thou shalt neither use false mystery nor cheap surprise thou shalt not use deus ex machina to get thine ending it's like uh you know it's it's really just like as simple as um make sure you end your you capitalize your sentences and and don't start your sentences with prepositions it feels very it feels very general very um uh not necessarily obvious but just like um it's not really telling you how to capture a story as much as it is like how to whittle it down and uh although i do think this is these are like good advice um uh, ultimately i think you need something more if you want to inspire someone right it's there's definitely truth here but these things just following these things won't make a story there's more that you have to add in there Uh, yeah i I mean i i do like the idea that there's principles you can learn to become a uh, better writer but i also think a lot of it comes from just going out and doing it and kind of finding your own voice in that and it takes endless hours of just doing it and and writing terrible things uh until you eventually find something you get better at it a little bit i hope (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes <laughs> i agree i agree with that i completely agree with that uh okay so i i just have one easter egg and it's like the easter egg of the movie like we've already kind of gone over this but i just want to state it explicitly this movie is based on writer charlie kaufman's struggle to adapt the best-selling book the orchid thief by susan orlean kaufman quickly got writer's block since the book lacked the dramatic structure needed for a movie so he decided to write a screenplay about himself struggling to write a book adaptation exaggerating many of the story elements and characters and making up new ones such as a non-existent twin brother donald kaufman knowing that the producers would reject the idea he did not tell them about the new direction in which he was taking the story and simply handed in the finished script although this move was supported by spike jones kaufman himself believed it would end his career uh spoiler alert it didn't Yes. Oh, one other thing is that Donald Kaufman is credited as the other screenwriter for this movie. And when Charlie was uh, nominated for um, an Academy Award uh, for this movie, uh, Donald Kaufman was also nominated. But they told him that if he won, they would have to share the trophy. 
<laughs> That's amazing. So and he said he said that uh, part of the experience of this movie is reading it like the written by section of the credits and seeing that it was written by Donald and Charlie Kaufman. Uh, it was just another way of him making another meta joke basically about the movie. Right. And they also have like a in loving memory of Donald Kaufman at the end of the film right. too. Like he really died. <laughs> <laughs> All very funny stuff. Yep. Okay. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of our discussion on adaptation. As we do at the end of every episode of Apple chat, we'll now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to adaptation? I give this movie an orchid that looks like a screenplay. Ah, unique and uh, <laughs> unlike any other. I love it. That's right. Attractive just to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the rating I'm going to give this film is a car with a higher safety rating. Dang, this movie makes me afraid to get in a car. yes car accidents i didn't notice there was a big theme i hate that i live in a society where it's the only way to get around is these dangerous uh cars so um you know hoping that my story doesn't include any of these uh life ending car wrecks uh we'll have to see because i don't really there's no other options here i have to get in a car so i was in a car this morning and i'll be another one right after this so uh there you go (laughs) living on the edge uh, undoubtedly (laughs) that's how you that's how you live passionately is uh by driving And driving passionately, too. Uh, Okay, well, there we have it. Adaptation, our second Charlie Kaufman film in our series of four. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. That's right. Uh, That one's coming right up right after this one. So uh, as we continue going down the path of Kaufman, I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm... I'm so glad. I knew you would. Yeah, no, you I, know I, me. I, I was like, you were so hesitant about it, but I was like, this is going to be great. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that as well. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Applechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at AffableChat, and even our email address, AffableChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then uh... adapt your own podcast about it. And during that episode, make sure you say, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? There you go. Thank you. (laughs) That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.